the automated podcast. So welcome again to Automated, the podcast focusing on exploring the impact of technology on jobs. And I'm your host, Mark Verbenkov. So as most people today are talking about the coronavirus or the COVID-19 virus, and it's certainly on the news enough, I thought it might be interesting to look at how the world of technology is reacting to this pandemic on the first part of the podcast where we look at recent uh, relevant technology news. So first off, as one of the main issues is actually detecting the coronavirus, it was interesting to read about Alibaba, the Chinese e-commerce website, uh, who had developed an AI system that can actually detect the virus within around 20 seconds and with about 96% accuracy. So the problem is that it is done by examining scans of patients' chests rather than having a much faster application. However, it does completely beat the normal time of some 15 minutes, which is what a human needs to examine the 300 plus images. And it's already being used in over 100 hospitals across China, along with other uh, rival AI systems and thousands of infected people have already been diagnosed thanks to the speed of the AI systems. So in another form of combating the coronavirus, again in China, there is a robot called the Thor-1. I'll have a quick video uh, posted in the show notes if you're interested. And this is a remotely controlled uh, robot on wheels, and it can apparently disinfect a 10,000 square meter area in just an hour. So although I've also talked of autonomous guided vehicles being used in hospitals in previous episodes, many Chinese hospitals are increasing the deployment of these robots to do a number of things like deliver medicine, uh, communicate with patients, and support nurses in other various ways to really reduce the human contact with the infected people in the hospitals. Um, however, I think a little bit more on the disturbing side of things, there are uses of drones that uh, do a couple of things. So one is that just like the Thor-1 robot, they spray disinfectant from the sky but they also patrol public areas and they're able to notify officials of whether or not people are walking around without or with their masks on and violating other quarantine rules. So as we see in China with a number of other things, these types of technologies are being used as a kind of control mechanism. Although one can of course argue that due to the spread of the virus, this is actually for the better, but I'll leave that up to you guys to uh, discuss and think about. And finally, uh, like me, perhaps you've had a, a recent conference that has been canceled due to the threat of spreading the infection. Well, there's actually a surge in conferences now being held in virtual rooms and accessible through VR headsets. So one example was a uh, so-called Educators in VR Summit, which included about 100 hours of content with 150 speakers or so, and 6,000 people joined over six days. So the event actually took, uh, interestingly enough, 14,000 cars off the road for a week and saved attendees a combined 24 million kilometers of travel. So for those of you that are interested in sustainability and issues dealing with climate change, this might be an interesting fact for you, although the articles that I was reading did not show the difference in actually using a VR system and whether that uh, significantly reduced uh, CO2 emissions and uh, improved sustainability compared to the amount of cars being used, although I think one can argue that it most probably does. 
So anyways, I think it's clear that uh, in a pandemic where human contact leads to constant spread of a virus, our technological tools can be really an invaluable help uh, to deal with the problem. However, as I've uh, discussed with some of you, uh, and you're totally right in arguing that it's also through technology, uh, most likely planes, that actually allows the virus to spread so quickly in the first place. So as mentioned last week, today's episode will look at the solutions proposed to the automation of jobs or technological unemployment. Though there are some solutions, no other solution has gained so much traction in the public consciousness compared to universal basic income. So today's episode will focus exclusively on this, while next week we'll look at the criticisms raised against it, as well as some alternatives to uh, UBI, or universal basic income. So UBI can most simply be understood as an unconditional monthly income that is given to individuals whether they work or not, hence the unconditional part of it. It does take many different forms, like a partial income, as part of a welfare system, or even as something called the negative income tax, as proposed by the neoliberal economist Milton Friedman. Uh, but overall, its main goal is to allow individuals and families to provide for their basic needs, which is why it is such a strong fit to the idea of automation, because if humans are replaced by technology, the ability to trade one's labor for income and thus one's ability to survive is ultimately stopped. So UBI is also a highly debated subject, with some arguing it should be added to the social systems already in place, like healthcare, whereas others argue all social systems should be replaced by it if it is to even be implemented at all. So though a bit out of scope for this episode, I plan to have perhaps two future episodes where each side can be fully described by people that I'd be inviting onto the podcast, as I think both typically have valid points. So though perhaps most popularized recently by Andrew Yang, uh, the recently withdrawn U.S. Democratic presidential candidate, who actually spent months talking about his uh, form of UBI called the Freedom Dividend, UBI has been around as far back as the 1500s, though typically presented in works of fiction back then. So the idea was discussed since then by various intellectuals and public speakers, such as Thomas Paine and even Martin Luther King Jr., but it wasn't until the 1960s and 1970s that actual pilot projects were implemented in the USA and Canada to test what the impacts would be. So since then, the idea has gained momentum, especially in Europe, as fears of automation and AI continue, while supplemented with more and more examples of the successful projects across the world. So let's look at a few of these examples to get a sense of what UBI actually does. So Mincom was a UBI project in Canada during the 1970s that actually ran for some five years. It remains not only one of the first, but also one of the longest large-scale projects to date. Its real goal was to find if a guaranteed income would disincentivize recipients to do at work. It occurred across uh, various areas in the province of Manitoba, but an entire third of a small town called Dauphin actually qualified and received the subsidy. So the program guaranteed a family's annual income would never fall below a basic amount, 
For a family of four, for example, that was about $16,000 in today's Canadian dollars. If they did earn some money, the income check kept coming, just at a reduced rate. So for example, if they earned, say, $10 extra, their income check would go down by $5. So working was, in this way, still rewarded. Unfortunately, though, a conservative political party came to power in 1979 and stopped the entire project without even having the data of the 3,000-plus people analyzed. And it wasn't until 2008, when the renewed interest in UBI, that the information was unboxed and eventually looked at. So though there was no direct evidence between income support and health outcomes, the claimed results showed a number of beneficial things. So most people receiving the subsidy actually kept working, but did reduce the amount of work slightly in favor of spending more time with family. Uh, Teenage boys, however, did stop working as their families no longer needed another breadwinner and they were able to spend more time at school and doing other things that were interesting for them. Um, Hospitalizations fell by roughly 8.5%, and this also included mental health. Um, but also work-related injuries and emergency room visits decreased as well. So as a Canadian myself, I heard of the Mincom experiment before many other UBI projects, but I was actually quite interested when I read that a pilot project had also occurred in India, as the culture, but also the level of expenses, are quite different compared to those in Canada. So in 2011 and 2012, Two separate programs were undertaken in an underdeveloped state in central India. Now, I think that the first program is actually a little bit more interesting as 20 very similar villages were selected to be part of this uh, experiment. Um, Half of the villages were actually given the stipend and in those villages that were selected, everyone was given roughly a third of a monthly income for a low-income family. Um, The interesting thing here, though, is that this um, monthly income had zero restrictions. So the people that received the money could essentially spend the money on whatever they wanted. The results showed quite some improvements for those that were given the stipend. Uh, And we can look at those briefly. So better food security and lower rates of malnutrition, especially in female children, were found. Uh, lower rates of illness, more consistent medical treatment, and more consistent medicine intake was found as well. Uh, Productivity rates increased as children in recipient villages had higher rates of school attendance, much like the uh, Mincom example as discussed before. Higher rates of labor and work, especially in self-employed contexts, was found. No evidence of higher alcohol consumption. Actually, the opposite was found. So alcohol consumption actually decreased. And households with these cash grants were three times more likely to open a new business or take on a new production activity compared to those households that didn't receive the uh, cash transfer. So these households also decreased their uh, levels of debt and, of course, increased their levels of savings. So what I think is interesting here is that the participants knew that the experiment would only last a single year. This is perhaps one of the more difficult things to deal with in these experiments. You know, how can the results be seen to be completely valid when participants know that the income is only temporary? 
And this has actually uh, been an argument in favor of universal basic income, as those that argue uh, for universal basic income claim that the results of all the experiments that have been done so far are actually conservative, and that if uh, UBI were implemented on a permanent long-term basis, the benefits would far surpass those of what we see in these short-term experiments. But looking at long-term payments, so compared to India, Alaska has been paying a partial basic income to all of its residents since 1982. So through the Alaska Permanent Fund, which was created in 1976 through the massive amount of wealth generated from oil mining of uh, North America's largest oil field, some 650,000 people receive the dividend every single year. And as the dividend is based on the interest of the fund, the amount has actually fluctuated between 300 and some $2,000, uh, which is given out once every single year. So though this is clearly not enough for individuals to survive off of, and thus really can't be considered a full UBI program, there has nevertheless been a number of studies to try and show what the effects actually are. So again, I'll look at some of the more interesting um, results of the studies. So first off, there was a small but positive uh, birth weight effect for low-income mothers, meaning that the weight of their child was actually higher um, than in other places where they didn't have the stipend. And this also extends into childhood, and there were actual findings that for three-year-olds, the fund actually helps to reduce obesity. So not only do you get uh, healthier uh, children when they are born, but you also reduce the level of obesity uh, as they are growing up, which I think is an especially large problem in uh, the United States. So there's also uh, something especially for the elderly. So poverty has been reduced in the elderly populations. Uh, however, income inequality has grown for the population as a whole. And again, kind of a uh, double-edged benefit here. Uh, property crime does seem to decrease following the payment, but at the same time, substance abuse also increased. So these were just some of the uh, examples out there. And there are actually many other pilots that have been conducted to ascertain the benefits and problems of UBI across the world. No national program has yet been fully implemented, though there was a referendum brought up in Switzerland in 2016, but it did not pass. Overall, there are consistent positive findings for the low-income individuals and families that receive these payments with regards to health, education, work, uh, crime rates, and even entrepreneurialism. So though this episode focused explicitly on the benefits of some UBI projects, next week we will look at some of the criticisms and alternative solutions that have been presented over time. So thanks for listening to this week's episode. If you want to support the podcast, you can leave a like or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you want to get in touch, feel free to do so over Twitter or LinkedIn by searching for Automated Podcast. On the website, automatedpodcast.org, you can leave a comment on any of the episodes, read the transcripts, and look at the sources I use in all of these episodes. There are also blog articles and additional resources and information on this topic and podcast if you are looking for more. See you next week. The Automated Podcast.